Matthew 11. From verse 1 it says, After Jesus had finished instructing his 12 disciples, he went on from there to teach and preach in the towns of Galilee. When John, who was in prison, heard about the deeds of the Messiah, he sent his disciples to ask him, Are you the one who is to come, or should we expect someone else? Jesus replied, Go back and report to John what you hear and see. The blind receive sight, the lame walk, those who have leprosy are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, and the good news is proclaimed to the poor. Blessed is anyone who does not stumble on account of me. Matthew chapter 11 is a really busy chapter. There is loads going on within that. And the passage opens by telling us that Jesus has instructed his disciples and he begins to preach and teach in the towns around Galilee. So he begins a preaching tour. He begins a, a bit of a ministry tour where he's going into towns and villages. Crowds are gathering around him and he's preaching and teaching. And that's what we see happening really as this chapter unfolds. And verse 2 tells us that when John, and this is John the Baptist, when John the Baptist heard what Jesus was doing, he sent his disciples to ask him, are you the one who is to come? Or should we expect someone else? Now, when we read that question, it kind of grinds us to a halt a little bit because it's a bit of a bizarre question to be attributed to John the Baptist. Because John, when we read his ministry, has always been a really confident preacher. He kind of comes across as a kind of shoot from the hip, black or white kind of guy. He's in the wilderness and he's preaching, repent of your sins and be baptized because the kingdom of heaven is at hand. The kingdom of God is near. I have come to make a people ready for God. I'm here to prepare the way of the Lord. And it's this black or white, all or nothing type preaching that's happening here. And he's confident. He's confident in his mandate from heaven. And as well as that, he's confident in his belief about Jesus. Because he points to him as he walks towards the banks of the River Jordan. He points to him and announces, Behold the Lamb of God that takes away the sins of the world. There's no ifs, buts, or maybes attached to that statement. It's not like he's unsure. He doesn't say, this might be the Lamb of God that takes away the sins of the world. Or this is maybe the Lamb of God. I think it possibly could be. No, he says, Behold. He says, turn and see, look, receive, understand. This is who this is. This is the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And then as he testifies about the moment that he baptized him, he says, I saw heaven open and the Spirit of God descend and the voice of the Father saying, this is my Son whom I love. With him I'm well pleased. He sees heaven open. He sees the, the Spirit. He hears the voice of God announcing, this is my Son. This is the Son of the living God. He says of him, I wouldn't have known who he was except the one that sent me, told me, the one on whom you see the Spirit descend. That's the one. He will baptize with spirit and fire. And John says of him, I'm not even worthy to untie his sandals. He must increase, I must decrease. He is absolutely sure and certain about who Jesus is. In fact, he almost introduces Jesus to the masses. 
This is the Lamb of God that takes away the sins of the world. Jesus was unknown to many people gathered around the banks of the River Jordan at that point until John pointed them out. He's sure and certain, but yet we turn into Matthew 11 and John sends words saying, I just want to check, are you? I'm just dotting the I's and crossing the T's. I just want to be sure, to be sure, to be sure. Are you the one that's to come? Or should we be expecting someone else? And you think, what has happened, John? What has happened that has moved you from being sure and certain to having question marks? What has moved you from being so confident to beginning to question and not be sure? And the passage tells us that all of this happened while John was in prison. He's been in prison for his ministry. He's in a crisis moment. He's confronted the ruler about his sinful lifestyle. He's ended up in prison as a result. Things aren't going well for him. Perhaps he's a little bit frustrated. He has a mandate from heaven to prepare the way of the Lord. How can he do that when he's in here? He's got a message to preach and he's not able to preach it while he's locked up in confinement and stuck inside this prison cell. There's this feeling of lack of momentum. This is not how he wanted to finish his ministry days. He'd seen this really successful ministry. Multitudes of people were being baptized. Multitudes of people were coming over to his message. He was leading a mini revolution. The favor of God was all over it. And now here he is in prison. And on top of that, he's a guy that's used to living in the wilderness out in the sticks. So he's now inside four walls. He feels suffocated by his situation and by his circumstances. This is almost like a dark season of the soul for John. This is a struggle for him. And doubt begins to rise. And question marks begin to come up. What he once was so sure and certain of, now he begins to doubt. And this teaches us a really important lesson that we're exploring today. Don't doubt in the dark what God has revealed in the light. Don't doubt in the dark what God has revealed in the light. You know, there are seasons in life when things get difficult, when the rubber hits the road, when the mucky stuff hits the fan, when you're up the creek without the paddle and at times you're not even sure if you're in the creek in a boat. And things get difficult and things get tough and we face the storms and we face the trials and we face the tribulations and what we once were so sure and certain of suddenly in light of the crisis begins to get question marks. What we were once so confident in suddenly in light of what we're having to endure begins to be uncertain. Don't doubt in the dark what God has spoken and revealed in the light. As we read the passage, we see Jesus responding to doubt. And it's amazing lessons that we learn from that. In verse 4, he says, Go back and report to John what you hear and see. The blind receive sight, the lame walk, those who have leprosy are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, and the good news is proclaimed to the poor. Blessed is anyone who doesn't stumble or fall away on account of me. Jesus tells John's disciples, Report back to him what you hear me saying and what you see me doing. He says, hear and see. In response to doubt, he says, look 
and listen. And you know, in moments of doubt, in the, the moments in which we can feel a bit stuck, like momentum is gone, like we've been suffocated by the seasons of life and the dark seasons of the soul, we must pause, adjust the focus of the soul a little bit, and look, what is God doing in my life right now? Where can I see him? Because when we discern his activity, it removes the doubt of his presence. When we can look and we can see him, when we can see his hand at work, when we can see his influence, the moments where we can perhaps look and see, I can see how he stayed that situation. I can see how he intervened in this circumstance. I can see how he's brought peace. I can see how he's brought protection. I can see how he turned this situation around. When we can look and we can see him, although we might not be able to feel him, we might not get the quiver in the liver and the goosebumps and the hair standing on end and the Holy Spirit Shamalaha stuff, although we might not be able to feel him, if we can look and we can see his activity, then we know that he's there. It removes the doubt of his presence. But not only is he present in the situation, he's also speaking in the situation. We are gifted, we are blessed to be gifted with the Holy Spirit. When we give our lives to Christ, we receive the Spirit of the living God. And the scripture says this, Jesus says this, John 14, 15, 16, he will not speak on his own, but he will speak what he hears. He communicates the voice of God to us. He is the conduit of God's voice. He reveals the heart, the thoughts, the mind, the voice of God to us. And in every situation that we are in, we have the ability to hear the voice of God. And the thing we have to understand is that God is like that farmer in the parable who goes out to sow the seed. And the farmer is consistent and committed to sowing the seed regardless of the conditions that it falls on. He just sows the seed. Let me tell you, our Father in heaven is committed regardless of the conditions of life, regardless of the conditions of our heart, regardless of what's going on round about us, regardless of what's going on within us, he is always releasing his word to us. He is always revealing his voice to us. And the primary way that he does that is through his word. Yes, he gives prophetic revelations, of course he does. Yes, he speaks in profound ways. Yes, he speaks in that still small voice and he gives visions and pictures and impressions and all of those things are really helpful. But let me tell you, they will only ever back up what he's already saying to you through his word. And so the times that we've lost sight of the voice of God, more often than not, are times that we've lost sight of the word of God. And so in the dark season of the soul, when we're struggling, when the rubber hits the road in those hard moments, we need to look to discern his activity, but we also need to listen to hear his voice because he is speaking. We need to open up our word, look into the word. What are you saying to me? What are you doing right now? Where, where, are, where can I sense your activity? What is it that you're speaking into this moment? He says, look and listen, see and hear. And what is incredible is when we begin to see what Jesus is saying. Let's pick it up from verse 7. As John's disciples were leaving, Jesus began to speak to the crowd about John. What did you go out into the wilderness to see? A reed swayed by the wind? If not, what did you go out to see? A man dressed in fine clothes? No, those who wear fine clothes are in king's palaces. Then what did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, I tell you, more than a prophet. 
This is the one about whom it is written, I will send my messenger ahead of you who will prepare the way before you. Truly, I tell you, among those born of women, there has not risen anyone greater than John the Baptist. Yet whoever is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. From the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven has been forcefully advancing and forceful people lay hold of it. For all the prophets and the law prophesied until John, and if you're willing to accept it, he is the Elijah who was to come. Whoever has ears, let them hear. As John's disciples come and they deliver the question, it says, as they were leaving, Jesus begins to affirm John, which would have meant that they were still within earshot of that. It doesn't say after the disciples left, he began to speak about John. It was as they were leaving, which means they would have heard that, and we'll come back to that. But Jesus begins to affirm John's ministry. He affirms his steadfast and unweaving ministry. He says, did you go out into the wilderness to see a reed blowing about by the wind? No, that's not John. That's not what you saw when you saw him. He had a faithful and unswerving, unswerving and steadfast ministry. He was faithful to what God had given him. He affirms that his ministry was extraordinary. He says, I tell you, out of all of those born of women, there has not risen one as great as John the Baptist. He says his life and his ministry was extraordinary. He affirms that he was self-effacing. He says, did you go and see a king dressed in fancy clothes? No, that's not John. He wasn't in this for the glitz and the glamour and the status and the the recognition. This isn't who he was. He was self-effacing. He affirmed his purpose and his calling. He says, he was one of whom it was written, he will prepare the way, he will make ready a people for God. What he was doing was in line with the calling and the purpose of God. And then comes the clincher. He says, did you go to see a prophet? Yes, you did. Yes, you did. And affirming John as prophet, he actually called out everything that John is doing, everything he said, everything he did, originated with God. Amos tells us God does nothing without revealing it to his prophets first. So in calling John prophet, he's saying to them what John did. His whole ministry was marked by God. If he says, Elijah, if you can accept this, John was the Elijah who was to come. And Jesus, he, he affirms John. And as he does, he, he speaks in response to what is most likely every one of John's doubts every feeling of loss, every frustration. Here's John cooped up in prison, thinking to himself, did did I really hear from God about this baptism? Because here I am in prison as a result of it. Was I really right in bringing people by the masses into the water and baptizing them? Did I really get it right about who Jesus was? Have I lost my calling? Did I really accomplish what I was sent to do? Because one minute I had a really successful ministry, and the next minute it's all gone, and here I am locked up inside of here. And as he's got all of these things going round and round in his head, Jesus actually responds to each and every one of these. As the disciples were leaving, as he speaks his affirmation, he responds to that. John was from God. What he carried was from God. What he did was from God. He was right on point with the purpose and calling that God had placed upon his life. And then he concludes it all with this phrase, he who has ears, let him hear. He says, listen to the affirmation of heaven. 
You know, sometimes in moments of doubt and frustration and feelings of being stuck, we need to take time to pause, to tune our hearts, and to listen, to listen to the affirmation of heaven. See, in those moments when we're going through it, it can be hard at times to hear the, the Rima word from God, to, to receive the prophetic revelation or the vision or the picture. But the one thing that we can be certain of in every situation that we will always hear is the affirmation of the Father. I love you. I've never stopped loving you. You are called, you are shaped by me. You are held in the palm of my hand. You're more than a conqueror in every situation. You're anointed and called for such a time as this. In every situation, we will always hear the affirmation of the Father. Do you know what I think is amazing about this passage? Is that Jesus clearly is, is teaching a crowd of people. When John's disciples come with their question, are you the one or should we expect someone else? which would suggest that they publicly expressed the questioning of John about the identity of Jesus. And even though he's publicly questioned about who he is, Jesus doesn't go full tonto. He doesn't lose his rag. He doesn't rebuke them or chastise them for bringing such doubts about who he is. He responds by affirming him. Which tells us two things. Firstly, it tells us it's okay to have doubts as long as we bring them to Jesus and let him speak into them. It's okay in those moments when the rubber hits the road and things get difficult. It's okay in the dark season of the soul to have questions. It's okay to doubt as long as we bring those questions and allow Jesus to speak. John the Baptist models something absolutely fantastic here. And he moves from the start of the passage from almost being like at zero to at this point being a hero because we see his faith. He doesn't sit in his prison cell with this doubt and question going round and round in his mind, eating up his soul and destroying the hope that he carries. No, he takes the doubts that he has and he sends them into the presence of Christ. He takes those questions and he brings them before Jesus. He allows Jesus to speak to them, to minister to them. But the second thing that we see here is that we have to come to the place where we allow God's affirmation to become our definition. We have to come to a place where we allow God to confirm and to affirm who we are, what we're doing, where we're going, our shape, our role, and our function. And that's exactly what Jesus did here in this moment. The fact that he speaks this affirmation as the disciples were leaving would have meant that it would have been in their earshot, which would have meant that when they went to John, they would have responded back to John by saying, this is what Jesus says. We have to tell you what we saw and what we heard. But by the way, you should have heard what he said about you. He said that you were anointed by God. He said that you were called by God. He said that what you were doing was prophetic. He says that what you were doing was right on line with the calling and the purpose of God for your life. He affirmed you. He confirmed and affirmed who John was. And the challenging thing here is that that confirmation was carried to the soul of John by others. And that's where the challenge comes. 
Because often God sends others to carry affirmation into our souls. Often God uses other people to release affirmation into our hearts. And we all want the direct line from God, don't we? We all want to hear the prophetic revelation ourselves, to have the vision and to have the picture. But the truth is, often God uses others to communicate his affirmation in our lives. You know those moments when you're in a conversation and someone speaks a sentence and it's just a sentence to them, but it's like the voice of God booming in your face. In those moments when someone says something and it's just a turn of phrase to them, it's just a part of the rhetoric or it's part of the conversation or just something that they've said, but actually it's just affirming in your soul everything that you need to hear. They don't realize it, but you've received what you need. And the biggest challenge I've found recently is when God uses people that you don't particularly like to do it. <laughs> and you're like, really? That person? Because you're not brought about confirmation through somebody that I really like. Or through somebody with a bit of status. Or you use that person? And that's because God humbles us in the process as well, doesn't he? Always better to eat humble pie than be force-fed, isn't it? Often God uses others to confirm and affirm. If you have ears here, stop. Let him define you. Let his affirmation over your life become the definition of your life. As the passage continues, Jesus then begins to talk about the generation that he's living in and ultimately it's not that different to the generation that we're living in. He says, for what can I compare this generation? They're like children sitting in the marketplace and calling out to others. We played the pipe for you and you didn't dance. We sang a dirge and you didn't mourn. For John came neither eating nor drinking and they say he is a demon. The son of man came eating and drinking and they say he is a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. But wisdom is proved right by her deeds. Jesus says this generation can only be likened to a group of children playing in the street. And he uses this analogy. It's like a group of children playing in the street and one says to the other, I've got an idea, let's play weddings today. The other group says, nah, I don't feel I've been happy today. So the original group says, okay, let's play funerals today. The other group says, nah, I don't feel I've been sad today. What he's trying to say in this weird analogy is quite simply this. People are fickle. That's probably the most profound revelation from heaven we'll ever get. <laughs> People are fickle. And he explains what he means by that. He says, John the Baptist came living a monastic life, cut off from, from people fasting, not eating lavishly on a diet of locusts and wild honey. And people looked at him and said, that guy's demonic. Jesus came and he came as the complete antithesis, plunging himself into social settings, eating and drinking, surrounding himself with people, sharing meals with people, constantly in the company of others. And people looked at him and said, He's demonic. It's like we can't win. People are fickle. John comes with a stripped back lifestyle, keeping himself separated. Demonic. Jesus comes and plunges himself in amongst people. Demonic. People are fickle. People's opinions change like the wind. Don't be defined by opinion and the voice of others. 
Be defined by the opinion and the voice of God. Don't be defined by culture which changes its landscape from one day to the next, but be defined by the calling and the cause of Christ which will change the landscape of every single day for your good and for his glory. Jesus' warning is clear here. If we allow our definition to come from popular opinion and from the evolving culture of life, then we will never find security in our identity as human beings. And actually, we'll never find security in our identity as followers of Jesus either. So let me ask you some pretty direct questions. What shapes your identity right now? What shapes you? What fashions you? What motivates you? What determines your mood and defines your momentum? What shapes your opinion and decides your direction? What is your influence, your impetus, your inward compass? Is it that which is shifting? Or is it that which is steadfast? Is it rooted in those that are fickle or in the one that is faithful? If you have ears, hear. Hear his voice. Hear his counsel. His direction. Listen for his affirmation, his shaping of your soul, his strengthening of your heart. Take heed of his instruction. Step into his calling and embrace his purpose. Listen for him. Look for him at work. Let him shape you. Let him move you. And above all, let him define you because he is not fickle. He is faithful. He doesn't shift and swither. He is steadfast and he is secure. He doesn't change his opinion from one day to the next, but his mercies are new every morning, thank God. And his faithfulness knows no limits. He is your definition. Let him define you and him only. As the passage continues, Jesus steers into a bit of a rant. It says in verse 20, Then Jesus began to denounce the towns in which most of his miracles had been performed because they did not repent. Woe to you, Chorazin, woe to you, Bethsaida. For if the miracles that were performed in you had been performed in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. But I tell you, it will be more bearable for Tyre and Sidon on the day of judgment than for you. And you, Capernaum, will you be lifted up to the heavens? No, you'll go down to Hades town. For if the miracles that were performed in you had been performed in Sodom, it would have remained to this day. But I tell you that it will be more bearable for Sodom on the day of judgment than for you. Jesus begins to list these towns and cities, he begins to denounce them. And as we read them, we actually come to this place in which we begin to agree with John the Gospel writer and his conclusion of if we were able to see and record everything that Jesus did, there would not be enough books in the world to contain it. Because we see the extent of his ministry. But as he begins to denounce these towns, the question comes, well, what's the problem with these towns? What's the sin in these towns? Did they, did they attack him? Did they drive him out of their streets? Did they seek to stone him and crucify him? And they did none of these things. Their sin was simply this. They disregarded him. They saw his miracles. They heard his teaching. He did exploits amongst them. And they did nothing. They refused to accept. They refused to repent. They refused to believe. Another two things come out of this. The first is a real call. 
Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your heart. Hear him. Listen to him. Respond to him. Let him shape you. Let him define you. Because we see, secondly, the starting point of all that Jesus asks of us. And the starting point, what he asks for us is just this. It's just belief. All he asks of us is belief. His issue with these towns and with these cities was that he preached there. He performed miracles there. He performed exploits there. And yet they refused to believe. All he asks of us is that we believe. If he gives you a word, if he gives you a picture, if he gives you a revelation, a scripture, if he releases a call to you, a mandate to you, a purpose to you, if he gives you a gifting and an anointing, don't just sit and say, oh, that's nice. Thank you very much. Let it define you. Believe it. Accept it. Receive it. Let it shape you. Let it define who you are. Don't doubt in the dark what he has spoken to you in the light. Let his word and his voice shape you. And maybe some of us need to come back to the personal altar of the soul and say, God, okay, I believe. Help my unbelief. Maybe some of us need to come back and resurrect that word that he spoke, that purpose that he gave. Maybe some of us need to start up those gift things and step into that calling. Maybe some of us need to lay hold of that promise again and say, God, sorry that I doubted in the dark what you spoke in the light. I'm bringing it back to a place of belief. I'm breathing it back to life with faith again. He calls us. Don't doubt in the dark. We spoke in the light. All he asks of us is belief. And the next verses outline what it is that we have to believe. It says in verse 25, At that time, Jesus said, I praise you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, because you've hidden these things from the wise and learned and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for this is what you were pleased to do. All things have been committed to me by my Father. No one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son and those to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. Come to me, all you who are wearied and burdened and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Jesus reveals in these verses what we have to believe. In fact, he reveals the basis for our belief. We have to believe in two simple things, the love of God and the sovereignty of God. He reveals God as Father. And he reveals him as the Lord of heaven and earth. He reveals him as love and he reveals him as sovereign. He says, I praise you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth. Our God is the Lord of the earth. God is in everything. Everything that is, everything that was, everything that is to come, God is in it all. He is through it all. He is at work in it all. Everything in the face of this earth, God is at work in it all. Every structure, every shape, every culture, every circumstance, every influence, God is at work in it all. He's at work through it all. But not only that, but he's also Lord of heaven, which means that not only is, it, is he in it all, but he's above all. He is over all. He's in all things. He's through all things. He's above all things. His sovereignty is bigger and greater and better than anything and everything 
that could ever exist. And that's why Jesus tells us that he hides the kingdom from the, the wise and the learned because relationship and knowledge with God is not found through wisdom and intellect. You can't intellectualize your way into the kingdom. Wisdom and intellect is about understanding how things work and where things come from and how things function. But God is above all things and he's over all things and he's greater and bigger and better than all things. So you cannot intellectualize your way into a knowledge of God. There's another way. In fact, there's a better way. Jesus says, all things have been committed to me by my Father. No one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son, and those to whom he has chosen to reveal him. Here is the big truth that is presented in these verses. God always works through the Son. All things have been committed to the Son. Everything has been committed to the Son. And we can see it presented to us in the pages of Scripture, even at the beginning of time. God created the world through the Son, John 1 verse 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through Him, all things have been made. Without Him, nothing was made that has been made. God spoke the created realm into existence, but the created realm exploded into existence through the Son. We see even with the scripture in the Old Testament, First Peter tells us, the prophets who spoke of the grace that was to come to you searched intently and with the greatest care, trying to find out the time and circumstances to which the spirit of Christ in them was pointing when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the glories that would follow. Throughout the Old Testament, the Spirit moving through the lives of the prophets was calling out Christ, was pointing to Christ. In fact, we're told that even the law and the sacrificial system were put in place to point us to Christ and to reveal that we cannot obtain grace on our own. We need Jesus. All through the Old Testament history, all through the structures that were introduced, everything was pointing to Jesus. Our salvation is worked through Jesus. God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whosoever believes in him will have eternal life. Our salvation is pinned on him. And even when it comes to judgment, Scripture says, moreover, the father judges no one, but has entrusted all judgment to the son. Even at the end of the world, it is the coming of the Son that will herald in the last age and the judgment because everything has been committed to him. God always works through the Son. The, the very beginning of time, the creation of the world is through the Son. The end of time and the end of this world and the new heaven and the new Jerusalem will be outworked through the Son. Everything is outworked through the Son. He came, he died, he rose again, and specifically, we're told, he ascended through the heavens to sit at the right hand of majesty. And that's significant because the person that sat at the right hand of the sovereign was the person who was enthroned over all the work and the activity of the sovereign. Jesus is enthroned at the right hand of the Father because he's enthroned over all the work and the activity of the Father because the Father always works through the Son. And if he's enthroned over all the work and the activity of the Father, then that means that he has a unique knowledge of the Father. And Jesus tells us this. 
No one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son. He has an exclusive knowledge of the Father. But here's the amazing thing. He chooses to reveal the Father to us. No one knows the Father except the Son and those to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. Here's how we gain a knowledge of the Father. Here's how we get through the doors of the kingdom. It's through the Son. You and I have been chosen for a revelation of the Father. We have been chosen to have a revelation of God. We are in him. If we put our faith and trust in him, then we are, we're told, in Christ, which means that we share in his exclusive knowledge of the Father. And the one who is sovereign in all things and the one that is sovereign over all things, the one that is enthroned over all the work and activity, the one that is greater and bigger and better than anything on the face of the earth has decreed and decided and chosen us to have a revelation of the Father. And if he who is in and over all things is greater and bigger and more powerful than anything, if he's chosen us to have a revelation of the Father, then nothing and no one can take it from us. We can confidently say that though Satan should buffet, though trials should come, let this blessed assurance control that Christ has regarded my helpless estate and has shed his own blood for my soul. We have a revelation of the Father because Jesus has chosen us for such a revelation. So don't doubt in the dark what God has revealed in the light. He has chosen us to receive that revelation and nothing and no one can take it away. He is sovereign. And an understanding of the sovereignty of God helps us to understand that our identity is not determined by crisis. Our identity is determined by Christ. So when we find ourselves going through the trials and the tribulations, when we find ourselves going through the difficulties and the hardships, we cannot doubt because what we've received in the light because our identity is not shaped by what we go through. Our identity is shaped by our Christ. Jesus talks about the sovereignty of God and then he talks about the love of God. He says, come to me, all you who are wearied and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. Jesus says, come to me. He issues an invitation. The invitation is to those who are weary. How do we get weary? Well, the word weary here literally means those that labor, those that journey, those that are tired, those that work hard. Jesus says, come to me if you're tired. He invites those that are weary, those whose hearts are heavy, those that carry the weight of the world on their shoulders. He says, come to me. But he also invites those that are burdened. The word burdened here means heavy laden, loaded up, carrying. He says, those that are carrying stuff, come. Those that have the weight of the world upon them that are carrying the baggage from the storms of life come to me because I want to give you rest. The word rest means repose. It means refresh. This is an invitation to refreshing, but more than that, it's an invitation to movement. It's a call for movement. He says, come to me in your frustration, in your dark moment, in your difficulty, in your struggle. Come, adjust your position. 
The phrase come to me, literally translated, means hither. Come hither or follow. Jesus says in those dark moments, in the struggles and the difficulties, change your position. Change your proximity to me. Move closer to me. I've said this before and I don't mean this, it's tongue in cheek, but notice how Jesus doesn't say in your difficulty when you're struggling, move church. But what he does say is, move closer to me. Not me, him. <laughs> Come hither. But also the phrase is, follow. In the dark moments, follow me. Look for me. Look for my activity. Look at what I'm doing and follow it. Because even though you walk through the fire and even though you walk through the waves, they won't sweep over and you won't be set ablaze because I'm with you. Even though you walk through the valley of the shadow of death, you can fear no evil because I'm walking there with you. Look for me. In every season, in every circumstance of life, I am journeying there right alongside you. Look for me, find me and follow what I'm doing. Do what you see me doing. Take my yoke upon you. As we know, a, a yoke is a, a wooden tool, a wooden instrument, a wooden beam. It was an agricultural tool that would tie two animals together so that rather than being two independent pulling forces, they were one and they, they were joined together, fastened together and worked in tandem. Jesus says, in the dark and difficult moments, would you come closer to me and fasten on to me? Bind to me. Cling to me. Attach yourself to me. In the Hebrew, the word for bind, cling, fasten is also the same word for trust. And here's what we learn what it means to be yoked to God. It's to trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding, but in everything just to acknowledge that he is sovereign and he is love. He's the Lord of heaven and earth. And he is our Father. And there's a promise that is given to those that trust. It says in Isaiah, those who trust in the Lord will renew their strength. They'll mount up with wings as eagles and soar. They will walk and not be weary. They will run and not be faint. It says to those that trust in him, there comes this transformation. And there comes some supernatural power because walking and not getting weary, running and running and running and not getting faint, that's not natural, that's supernatural. So when we trust in him and we fasten on to him and we bind to him and we cling to him, there comes this stream of limitless, incomprehensible, supernatural power that completely transforms who we are. We see it with the woman with the issue of blood. She spent all her money on doctors. She's living in pain. She's living with this constant dark cloud over her soul and she breaks through the crowd and she reaches out and she fastens onto the hem of his garment. And there comes this stream of limitless, incomprehensible, supernatural power that completely transforms who she is as she's healed. See, with Peter as he's walking on the waves and suddenly he begins to doubt when he sees the storm raging round about him and he begins to sink, but he reaches out his hand and he fastens on to the hand of Christ and suddenly there comes this stream of limitless, incomprehensible, supernatural power and he begins to walk in authority over that which he once had fear of. 
We see it with the woman with the alabaster jar, crippled with a life of guilt and shame, rejected by her community. And she comes and she fastens onto his feet with love and adoration. And there comes that supernatural, limitless power that says, go in peace. Your sins are forgiven. We see it with the disciples in the upper room that fastened on to a promise, do not leave Jerusalem, but wait. And as they fastened on, suddenly there came the sound of the blowing of the violent wind. And suddenly there came that stream of supernatural power that completely transformed who they are forever. In the dark seasons of the soul, we need to look for him. We need to come close to him. We need to see what he's doing and follow him to fasten on to him and watch as his power invades those seasons and brings radical transformation. Jesus says, take my yoke upon you. Find that my yoke is easy. The word easy here, it doesn't mean that it's not difficult. The translation from the Greek here means it fits well. When a farmer made a yoke, they had to make sure it was one that wasn't too heavy for the animals, one that wouldn't fall off, one that wouldn't just break as soon as pressure was put upon it, but one that was perfect, one that fitted them. Jesus invites us. In the dark season of the soul and the difficult times and the moments of doubt, fasten on to me, move close to me, come to me, don't be defined by others. Let me define you because what I have for you is perfect for you. It fits you perfectly. The call that I have, the purpose that I have. I have what you need for this situation. I have what you need to endure and I have what you need to come through the other side. I have that which fits you perfectly. Sharing his yoke is to come into relationship with him that is unique to us. To know him in a way that nobody else can but us. And he says, learn from me. Literal translation is understand me. When we fasten on to him, isn't this amazing? When we go through the difficulties and the hardships, when we find ourselves in those moments where the rubber hits the road and Life is so difficult and we come to him and we fasten on to him and we cling to him and we move closer to him. In those moments, he doesn't say, oh, you weak thing. For goodness sake, you should be able to do this. Here's what he does. He just reveals more and more of his heart to us, more and more of his character and his nature to us. Actually, in the place of the yoke is a place of greater understanding. It's a place of greater revelation. It's a place of going deeper in him where we begin to look and see him at work, when we begin to listen and hear him speak. Don't doubt in the dark what God has revealed in the light. In those difficult seasons, he calls, move closer, come hither, come close to me, fasten on, bind to me. I want to send to you exactly what you need. I want to give you that which is just perfect for you. Look and listen, see and hear, find and follow. 
And together, we can step fully into the light. Let's pray together.